And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast recording Friday morning from lower Manhattan. God, I miss Manhattan. And joining us to recap a wild, but also kind of boring, but also sort of depressing night for the Philadelphia 76ers in Philly. The return of Ben Simmons, kind of, sort of. He looked very nice on the sideline. James Harden crapped the bed in another big game. Uh, the Sixers got destroyed by the Nets. Nick Friedel was there. Mr. Friedel, how are you? Mr. Lowe, how about the win of the year for the Nets? <laughs> how about the turning point in a completely wacky season and a reminder of just how much talent is still there, even without Simmons playing? So we could go a variety of different directions, but that was a juiced up atmosphere in Philly last night. And do not sleep on the win in Charlotte, where Kyrie had 50 on 19 shots, I think, because they now have a two-game cushion on the ninth seed. And the difference between eight and nine in the play-in is a huge deal. You get two chances to get in versus just one chance to get in. Uh, and and I didn't think we'd be having a play-in discussion about the Brooklyn Nets in late in the regular season. But that is the curse of Nick Friedel, where you go bad things follow. And as soon as you leave the Warriors, you know, your last year with the Warriors, it's almost like the Warriors knew Friedel's leaving. Let's start winning again. You go to Brooklyn, melodrama, trades, people with hamstring issues that are uh, that are uh, lagging them. Uh, it's just everywhere you go. I don't, if I'm a team and I hear you're coming, I want, like, I don't know what's happening. I, I don't have a lot of faith in the mayor's office changing this rule because you're here. <laughs> Can we just start by letting the record show that I was at Game 7 of the 2016 World Series? So it's not a full curse. Maybe That's it. You used it all up there. I, well, hey, I mean, whatever the took. Cubs win and you get nothing else. <laughs> Everything else goes bad. It, it, has been a, it has been a rough stretch for a lot of the teams that I have covered. But I will say the Warriors were, what, 19-2 and two to start the year? So I was there for like the first two, three months, and I feel like I got them back on track. In fact, some of my, my old friends in the Bay were joking that I need to go back to motivate Andrew Wiggins to play like he did in the first half of the season as he became an all-star starter. But yeah, it... I already miss I already miss when I would say, very matter-of-factly, that Andrew Wiggins didn't deserve to be in the all-star game. No slight on Andrew Wiggins. Only 12 guys get in for each conference. You're one of the 24 best players in the world. People are, no, he's having... You're being mean to Andrew Wiggins. He's having a good season. Yeah, it's fine. He's just not an all-star. Anyway, so you, what time did you get to the arena last night? Where did you sit? What did you see? Give me some stuff we couldn't see on camera or couldn't hear on camera about the atmosphere in Philly for Ben Simmons coming back. Well, the, the interesting part is that it started around 10:15 when the Nets came in in the morning for shoot around. And Zach, I cannot believe how many camera crews. We're talking like eight camera crews to walk watch Simmons walk into the building. And my producer Tony yesterday was was telling me as a couple guys were walking back out after they had finished an hour later, they're looking at each other going, is this the finals? <laughs> like, what the hell is going on to watch him walk out? Because he wasn't going to talk. The, the Nets made that very clear. And so you knew the tone was set early on from what the players were seeing. But I'd go back, forget just last night and, and what it was like in that building on Thursday. Go back to that end of the, the Charlotte game Tuesday. 
the seeds were planted right there because Kevin Durant said after that game against the Hornets, I am not going to talk to Ben Simmons at all. He has to live this for himself. But it was obvious in listening to Kevin and listening to Kyrie that they felt like they needed to play for Simmons because he couldn't be out there. And KD made that point in that Oklahoma City game when he came back as a warrior, he was able to shut people up by knocking down shots. And they won, and and he got the last laugh, the, the cupcake game. Well, Simmons didn't have that choice. So we get to the arena, and I'm talking to a couple of the, the people who came in with the, the Nets on the bus, and they said that there were 100 people at the, the hotel just screaming at him, cussing at him. Everybody was all over him, and all they wanted to do all night was boo the hell out of him. And what was so fascinating to me is fast forward to the end of the night, and, and Durant said, yeah, we wanted to play for him. And yeah, we knew that if we played well and we focused, that people couldn't sit there and just scream at him all night long. And Zach, they booed him when he first came out, and it's notable that he walked out with Patty Mills because Patty Mills has gone out of his way repeatedly, and I've talked to him about it, and saying, I want to make Ben feel comfortable. I want him to feel like I have his back at all times. So he walks out with Patty Mills. He helps Patty warm up. He sits next to Mills on the bench. But he got booed quickly. That lasted for like a minute. They cheered when he threw down his one dunk <laughs> in pregame. And, and it just kind of fizzled. And so then he comes out in the starting lineup introductions. And people don't really see him because Embiid's getting introduced. And, and everybody's going through the motions. And then the lights come up. And he's getting booed loudly. And then, again... Kevin Durant threw down that dunk, and he's he's looking at Iverson and Dr. J under the basket, and he's going, okay, we're under control here. So specifically, KD and Kyrie knew what they were getting into. They'd been in that environment before, but every one of those guys, especially Patty Mills, made it a point to make Ben Simmons feel like he was part of that team. And there are a lot of layers here, but the thing I don't want people to forget is there was a lot of love lost between Kyrie and Harden. And Zach, we can go on and on about the Simmons stuff, and it is fascinating. But Kyrie said after that Charlotte game, he wished the communication with Harden had been better at the end. Harden was the one, go back two months ago to that game in Chicago where they just kicked the Bulls' ass in the second half, and Harden stands up from the little podium and goes, I'm going to give Kyrie the shot myself. Uh, I don't think Kyrie particularly liked that, and I don't think James particularly liked playing without Kyrie in all these games because he's not vaccinated. So, I'm already tired. I'm already tired of going back into the into the in, into it. I just I can't, I'm telling I can't you, hear it. the reason I, they I were so locked in wasn't just we've got Ben's back. The reason that Kyrie and Kevin were so locked in was also that they were trying to send a little message back to Harden and saying, "Hey, you quit on us. We wanted you here. We wanted you to be part of this and win a title with us. You quit, and now we're going to kick your ass all night." And we are going to show Simmons and plant the seeds in his head that this is the team that he is with now and moving forward, and we will be there for him when he's ready to roll. Any interactions between Simmons and anybody with the Sixers? Because usually you see guys come out, even you'll see it on TV, They'll even if they don't want to 
go dap up their former co-star teammate with whom there's some tension or the coach. They'll hit the security guys. You'll see a couple of trainers or whatever sort of step out of protocol and give the guy a hug. Anything? Did he, did he avoid the bench? What was it like? He walked by the bench to start the second half a little before halftime was ending. He gave Doc a little half-hearted hey and looked like he talked to a couple of the security guys and and a couple people on the bench, but it was very cold. It was interesting to me, before the game started, before he had walked out there with Patty Mills onto the floor, he was talking to like the, the social media guy, I think, from the Sixers or, or one of the social media people. And the security guards, and I have never seen this because we live in a world where everybody's got their phone out and they're taking pictures or video all the time. The security guards are screaming at people, no video, no video. And I'm thinking, was that Simmons saying something? Was that the Nets being ultra protective? But it was just an odd scene because he was walking through a building that, of course, he knew so well. And there were people that he went out of his way to to say hello to and, and have a moment with. But there were not a lot of teammates, former teammates, that he appeared to, to have uh, those couple of seconds with. And and that's all well and good because it just felt like when you're watching two parents, two sides of a divorce meet back up at a, a family function for the first time. It was cold. It was awkward. And it was something, frankly, at least from the Nets perspective, Zach, that had to happen. They felt like mentally Simmons had to go through what he did last night because they feel like it will prepare him not only for whenever he does come back and play in the next couple of weeks, but for whenever that return game in Philly is going to be, especially if it's in some kind of postseason series. But it was a, a mental hurdle that they felt like he had to clear and they did the best they could to clear it with him and control what they could on the floor. It probably is. It was a mental hurdle. I just think it's like it's the hurdle that like the the little kids use when they're learning track. Like the real hurdle, the one you got to actually like run full speed and jump over. And then if I tried to jump over, I'd hit it with my knee and fall and hit my face on the floor. That hurdle is coming when you actually have to play. Like sitting on the bench, they forget about you. And then it's a blowout. They're, they're, I didn't even hear any chance in like the second half of the game directed at him or anything like that. That's the like that. It's I. He did exactly what I would have done. I would have said, let me step in. I want to step. I can't avoid the game. I got to go because otherwise it's a whole thing and I look weak and I am weak. I got to go. But I I, I, I want to sit on the bench, just be there and feel it and absorb it before I go full blast and have to play in front of those fans, have to shoot free throws in front of those fans, have to pass up jump shots in front of those fans. So wake me up when that happens. Um, Harden, you mentioned James Harden. Three of 17, four turnovers, 11 points. Look, James Harden has had some big playoff games. By the numbers, his, by, by raw numbers, his playoff numbers are, are what they are. Uh, he's, you can look back at the game log and say, oh, look at he had 30 points in this game, four and 29 points here, and his 2019 series against the Warriors in the conference semifinals, he averaged like 30 a game. I watched all the games. I went back and watched all the crunch times. I went back and watched all the last five minutes of every close game. I know how that series in 2019 against the Warriors, when his raw numbers were so good, I know how it ended. 
It ended with Kevin Durant getting hurt in game five, the door opening and the Rockets falling on their faces and then smacking their head on the doorknob on the way out, trying to get out the door and getting roasted on their home floor. And James Harden coughing up like four heinous turnovers in the fourth quarter of that game. I know what his shooting percentages are in the last three minutes of close playoff games. They're really bad. They're way worse than you would expect, even if you expect shooting percentages to go down in crunch time against great defenses. I know what his turnover rate is in those minutes. It's really bad. I watched them all. I know that his best playoff games, some of them, many of them, a disproportionate amount of them are Houston down 3-0 in the first round. Harden explodes for 41. Who gives a Houston down 3-1. I know that a lot of his crunch time baskets, because I watched all of them, are Houston down 8 with 30 seconds left. Here, have a layup. We just don't want you to get a 3. A dis- Not a lot, a disproportionate number. And so I see a game like this, and and Nick, I right away in the first quarter, there was a play that stood out to me, and we were replaying it a little bit today. He is on the, on the left wing. He drove in, I think, off a pick and roll from Embiid, and Durant was guarding the guy in the corner. And Durant stunted out at Harden. And Durant's big and long and scary when he gets in your way and help defense. And Harden, rather than playing basketball, saw Durant reach out, picked up the dribble like 14 feet out of the rim, and puked up this attempt at something. And it was it was a signal to me that he doesn't want to play basketball tonight. He's trying to game the game. He's just trying to play for a foul. And he just, I don't want to say James Harden is a front runner, but he has a little bit of a front runner thing to him when, when it's easy and everything's, we're cruising, we're beating people, the step back's rolling, like, he's full throttle. When people punch him in the face a little bit, he has a tendency in some of these games to sort of retreat a little bit, and I thought he retreated last night. I'm not going to overreact to one game. I don't really care what he does in the regular season. I care what he does in the playoffs. I'm not going to overreact to it, but it wasn't awesome. Ding, ding, ding. And the part about the puking up... (laughs) At the basketball, because I know exactly what play you're talking about. A lot of the Nets staff who had watched James in those last couple months were sitting there going, uh-huh. And after the game. When he took that shot, I was home saying he, he's not – that's not – It's not happening. That's not an right. aggressive, engaged play. That's someone trying to steal two points because I don't even know why. Because he just needs the confidence at the foul line because he just – I don't know why. How many times in the last couple months when he was playing for the Nets did you see the same sequence? He's going to the rim. He's looking for a call. It's not coming. He sits there with his arms up in the air going, what the hell is this? And and he's lagging back on defense. I mean, James Harden is an unbelievably talented offensive player. But, Zach, there are nights when he just does not want it. And you and I have watched him. For a long time now, and seeing him up close in these last couple months, it reminded me of two things. The guy is is still an incredible scorer. He started off really hot with Philly, and he has talent that so many guys wish they could come up with. But the second part of that, which you just hit on, and it is crucial, is when James Harden doesn't want to play, he is not going to give you much. And, and let's it is and let's be fair. But it's clear let's in those fair. big games, a lot of those times, he doesn't want to be out there. And he is not the difference-making player that he has shown to be at various points in the regular season. Let's be fair. 
Joel Embiid, 5-17, but I thought he came to play. Got to the line 17 times, relentless. Maxi 2 of 7, 4 points. Thibault, 1 of 5, 4 points. Shake Milton, 0 of 6, 0 points. This loss wasn't just about Harden. Danny Green didn't play, and they needed Danny Green's defense. They needed him and Thibault, and Thibault on the floor at the same Zach, time. Zach, that defense was atrocious. I had our boy well, Timmy B next to me going, Damn, nobody's going to Durant! Nobody can guard Durant, and then Seth Curry would. But well, what they really needed book. was <laughs> he would be like what they really needed was Thibault to guard Durant <laughs> and Danny Green or so somebody else to guard Kyrie, and they didn't have the personnel. And look to the Nets' credit, I think you can see Steve Nash's vision for this team coming coming out a little bit. And the vision is our three stars: Kyrie, KD, and Simmons, and shooting. And yeah, we're going to have to mix in a Bruce Brown because a lot of our shooters are really small. They're Patty Mills and Goran Dragic and Seth Curry. And so we're going to have to mix in a Claxton, a, a Brown, a James Johnson. But I think the Nets believe if we get Simmons and we have Kyrie and we have KD, pick two of Curry, Mills, Dragic, whatever, you are not going to be able to guard us. We may have some issues guarding you. We may have some issues rebounding, but that's how we played last year. Harden, Durant, Irving, Harris, Jeff Green. Blake Griffin, whatever, Bruce Brown. It's They're not big lineups. It's just good luck. Good luck guarding us. And I think last night they served notice, like, when we get our real team, we might have to sneak in. We're going to have to sneak in through the play-in, but you're not going to want to play us. And we do have the ability to win any single playoff series against any Eastern Conference opponent, depending, obviously, on how many of the games Kyrie can play. And I'd say this, even when times were at their worst for the Nets in the last couple of weeks, Zach, wholeheartedly, this team still believes it can win a title. And you look at the standings and you look at the fact that they had lost 17 of 20. And there are all these reasons why people want to write off the, the Nets. They don't have chemistry. What, what kind of player is Simmons going to be? Last night was a reminder of why Nash publicly and privately to his team has continued the same mantra. Hey, we're coming together. We're going through some tough times, but it will get better. Kevin's back now. They continue to hope that Eric Adams is is going to roll back this vaccination mandate and Kyrie will be able to play in home games at some point. The feeling is all the talent and all the pieces are there. They just have to make them click in together. And in the context of last night, another name that will we'll never get the credit that he deserved because of all the other hoopla surrounding things. But Andre Drummond got into foul trouble early, got hit. The, I believe he, he fell on his ankle. He, he wasn't playing at the level he's been playing lately. Zach, Nick Claxton came in and really gave them some good minutes. And when you're getting that type of production on top of what you know is going to come from KD and what you know offensively is going to be there from Kyrie, and I throw in – We've seen Kyrie show up in big games defensively. He locked down Harden <laughs> in a major way uh, last I don't, night. I don't believe it. Everyone's talking about Kyrie's defense today. I we see it once. We see him do this once every four but games. I, I don't care. It's, but it's possible. The point is that he's shown it at these these little blips on the radar. That yes, when he wants to play defense, it is possible, and he can be a difference maker on that end as well. All that being said. The, the takeaway in listening to the Nets and being around that team last night is nobody is going to want to touch us if we can all just be whole together before the playoffs start. 
even if it's in the play-in, and they can get rolling. I don't even think anyone wants to touch them if it's KD and Simmons and Kyrie for half the games. I think that team is dangerous enough to make the finals. But here's the thing. We just debated this on Get Up. Greeny said he would bet everything he has on the Nets fully formed, meaning Kyrie plays every game, making the finals in the East. And I said to him, I just want to be clear. I want your loved ones to know the house, the car, the job, the savings account. You're betting it all on a team in eighth in the East. Like, I don't care how good you are, and that team can absolutely make the finals. If you're staring at eighth, and I got to go to Toronto where Kyrie can't play to win one game to get in the playoffs, and if I lose that, I'm one bad game away from it being over. If I win that, then I got to go like Milwaukee, Philly, Miami, or something like that. It's just, the unfortunately for all this optimism, the fact that they have lost 17 out of 20 at one point, the fact that they are eighth matters because their road is really, really difficult and they have to actually like get on the road first, which means getting out of the plan. It's just going to be really hard for them. I don't disagree with the optimism that that team can win the East. I don't even disagree with the idea that they can win the East with Kyrie playing just road games, particularly if they're going to be a low seed and and have four road games instead of three in every series. I just like to to bet on it is crazy to me. I would not put my tiny apartment <laughs> on the line for, for all that it was worth to see the Nets potentially get there. I I would still probably pick them, Zach, but I wouldn't feel that great about it, not, not only for the reasons you just outlined, but that the wear and tear on everybody, if that's the scenario, getting through the play-in, Miami or Philly, and then and then Milwaukee. That is a difficult road. But all that kept popping in my head as as you were talking about that right there is he's Kevin Durant, and I I just don't think that people remember sometimes when Kevin goes through these these injury spells and he's been out for long stretches the last couple of years and of course the Achilles a few years ago in the finals he's incredible <laughs> the guy is just unbelievable and the confidence that he brings the rest of that group and we can talk about Kyrie and he had his issues with Harden and I'm here to tell you that the younger guys on that roster love Kyrie They love him. They know how talented he can be. And you mentioned that Charlotte game. He was unbelievable, and he was efficient, and he just kicked the hornet's ass all night. But Kevin Durant is on a completely different level, and he is the guy who can carry them all the way through. So in so many ways, we could go down the line of the roster, and who else is going to step up? And Seth Curry has to hit shots, and what else are you going to get depth-wise? The reason the Nets feel like no matter what the road is, no matter what path they have to go through to get there, they can do it is because of Kevin Durant. Mr. Friedel, thank you for joining us in the wake of that game last night. I'm glad that you're becoming a little more aware that you used up all your karma for the Cubs to win the World Series, and it's all downhill from here for every team that you're even within spitting distance of. Um, Thanks for your analysis on the game. We're now going to transition to the Spurs 
play the Jazz tonight. Greg Popovich has a chance to break Don Nelson's record for all-time coaching wins, and we have a cavalcade of quick hitters with friends of Pop, associates of Pop, coming up now. So enjoy Steve Kerr and Ime Odoka and Monty Williams and on and on for everyone's Pop reminiscence. And uh, thank you, Mr. Fridell. Always, buddy. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes! Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. All right, let's first bring in one of my favorite NBA people from the last 20 or 30 years, longtime Spurs assistant coach, Philadelphia head coach for several seasons, but not now. We miss him in the NBA. He'll be back someday. Brett Brown, how are you? I'm doing great, Zach. Thanks for having me. You were an assistant with the Spurs from 99 to 2002. Then you left. Don't really know why you left. You went back to Australia. Then you came back for a whole bunch of winning and championships before you left in 2013 for the Sixers. Um, so let's start here. Pop is Pop is not just a coach and a mentor to you. He's been described in stories um, that I read as, as one of your best friends and you're one of his best friends. So as you watch this happen, and we're recording this on Wednesday, so it could happen tonight, it could still be in play, we'll see. What do you find yourself, just when you're thinking and watching TV, what do you find yourself reflecting on? Do you find yourself smiling? Do you find yourself thinking back on a particular game or moment? What do you find yourself, what are the emotions? I mean, it's it certainly, everything is under just, just amazing respect and, and appreciation for the journey. And I think as I sort of see this, this record unfold, I'm reminded clearly of, of my introduction to him. And uh, effectively in 1998, I was coaching in Athens, Greece at the world championships with the Australian team. And I learned while overseas that the team that I was coaching in Melbourne had merged with another team. And at that point I had signed a five-year contract and the other team kept their coach. They were more financial. And so you sort of were, were in a tailspin of trying to figure out what to do. Um, a long story in the way that I met R.C. Buford uh, and reached out to Pop to sort of come to the United States and test the NBA waters and, and, and so on. And so my first introduction with Pop was in 1998. 
And Zach, you know, the times that we had spent in a room because effectively it was a lockout year and just kind of bunk it in with my young family. And, and we really never started to play until, you know, February. So from, you know, September of 98 until February of 99, we, we were just in a room all together, six, six of us. And uh, it really kind of set the foundation for my memories with Pop. Um, it, 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 the story would continue that, you know, we, we started out slow. We were six and eight. We, we had lost uh, by quite a bit at home to the Utah Jazz. And people were uncertain if they wanted him to be the coach. And uh, it was just an experience as I look back at my first introduction to him and, you know, the struggles that he went through a little bit at the start and then, you know, exploded into this now record. Just the journey is very unique and uh, very happy and proud to have been a part of it. I, I even read that there was some heckling maybe at that at that jazz game. And I, and I remember and I read that I, I can't remember exactly, but that sort of there were there were people around Pop when you hear heckling. I mean, it's hard to imagine Pop. The Spurs were struggling. Pop was like on thin ice. And people expected him to be stressed out and, oh, my God, my life is is on, on, on a thread here. And it was the opposite, right? It was like, you know, we're just going to do our best. This is sports. We'll figure it out. I don't know if that's accurate in your memory from those from those struggle times in 99. Of course, you're going to win the title that year. Exactly. It was crazy. You know, at that time I, when I came over, I mean, I wasn't young. I'd been a head coach for 17 previous years. I, w- I was 42 you know, going on 43. And so when you come over and I'm the son of a coach and, and you hear the heckling, you can't help but hear it. I, I'm right behind his bench. And effectively, you know, I'm a guest of the program and it's an apprentice year and I, I'm learning, you know, about NBA basketball. But, you know, I wasn't young and I wasn't naive. And so as you're sitting there and you're hearing it, you know, it's real. And, and I remember before that Utah game, I'm on a treadmill and I've only been with him for probably you know, September, and it was, I think, February the 2nd or whatever, so what's that, six months? And I wasn't with him a lot, but we're on a treadmill prior to the Jazz game, and I'm just, like, looking ahead and running, and, and effectively, you know, he asked me, like, what do you think, uh, you know, about what's going on? And I say, I get the whole thing. You know, I've lived it myself. I'm the son of a coach. I said, what do you think, Pop? And, and, and he, he kind of looked at me and, and, and kind of scolded me, like, hey, you, you know, you just stay the course. I know you brought your family over here, unsure what's going to happen with us, but you will be fine. You know, it's all about, you know, just staying on, on point and making sure that we all don't get distracted. Now, he chose, <laughs> he chose different words than that, but effectively that's what was said. And it really, as a young coach, you know, it, just, it stood me up. You can't help but all of a sudden turn my treadmill off and just – you know, stare at him and, and take it all in. And I think, you know, from that, that early sort of introduction, it's very clear that just from a human standpoint, you know, character, somebody that you can, you know, reach out to, to get advice from, he, he's a very good friend and it goes far deeper than just uh, hoops. Pop is almost more myth than man at this point, more personality than coach in the public eye. Like everyone knows his sideline interviews, his in-between quarters interviews and his demeanor there. His demeanor at press conferences is both funny and sometimes biting. He's become one of America's foremost political and social commentators. But I want to get into him as a coach in the nitty gritty, 
in the muck because that's where Pop lives. That's where Pop wants to live. Pop doesn't want anything to do with this pomp and circumstance and all this. So I'll, I'll ask this question. Maybe this will get you somewhere. What's one time where you remembered disagreeing with Pop? Not in a bad way, but like on a strategic matter or on a coaching decision matter. Like take us – maybe that can get us into – like let's get into the muck of the game where Pop really likes to live. Well – you, you know, the, the war room, call it what you will. So in, in a room at a young age, you got Mike Budenholzer, myself, Joe Prunty, you know, a few years later, Mike Brown, PJ Carlissimo, Hank Egan, his former coach at, at the Air Force Academy and the great, you know, USD coach. So the war room produced, and, and this was Pops, this was Pops, I, I think, greatest strength where he, he, he wanted to pick a fight. Like he, he wanted to be able to, you know, have somebody say, well, I don't see it that way. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine, you know, in that world. And I, to, to sort of single out some specific thing, there were just too many. And it's like, I think Mike, you know, Bud, my good friend in Milwaukee, we all kind of say the same thing. No, nobody walked on pins and needles. You, you know, I think that his dinners and, and the way that he formed a staff um, enabled all of us to coexist and, you know, talk outside of uh, hoops and, and, and not always talk shop in a far more comfortable way. But like to delineate one ex specific example, there were just too many. It was more the environment that he created that allowed people to uh, to speak their piece. And, and that we did, I'm sure at times to an irritating point, but that was what he demanded. What's your best memory of a pop dinner and i realized there are hundreds of pop dinners and to the point that i remember running into the spurs coaching staff in brooklyn maybe four or five years ago before a nets game talking to some of the assistants and they were like on the second night of a back-to-back -back and they were joking man this game's gonna end at 10 Whew, i'm tired we're gonna be out here at like 11 but pop has a dinner reservation at one of his favorite places in the city and like you can't get out of it we gotta go even if we're tired and of course you end up having a good time so i don't know if there's one city one restaurant, one dinner, one conversation that like when you think of this, this is the one that comes to mind as like the fondest, maybe one bottle of wine. I don't know, the fond the fondest pop dinner memory. I mean, it would be sort of a compilation with with the backdrop of this massive part of his program and how he likes to form a staff and, and a team. Like the players were with us a lot, you know, not necessarily at the table. But it was just an environment where, you know, I had come from Australia. I grew up in Maine. I, I'm not used to, you know, much lobsters were obviously the, the maybe the highest level of food, you know, you used to having all of a sudden you jump into this, you know, five star Zagat rated Michelin rated <laughs> restaurant scene with with wine that, you know, I don't know much about. I, I love the freezing cold beer and learned as my 12 years would pop unfolded a little bit about wine, but the two, the probably the two, the two things that, that come up, one has been written and discussed a lot, you know, the Miami, when we lost that, that crushing sort of, uh, um, um, basket by Ray Allen, you know, to go to, uh, a game seven, but you know, he rallies the troops that has already been documented. I think for me, when I look at just like the, the awe of the restaurants that he would select, like we're in France and we're at a, a Michelin rated, I think it's one of the best restaurants in Europe. 
And you got probably 20, 25 people sitting at a very long table. And he kind of nudges me and says, watch this. And, and the waiter comes out and he, he doesn't have a pen or, 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 or paper. And he just walks person by person and, you know, and takes their, 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 their entree, their main course, what would you like to drink? And I'm blown away where you watch this guy circle the table and it probably takes him 10 minutes without a note, you know, and he just comes back and perfectly serves, you know, his foie gras or filet mignon or, you know, whatever it is. And I think just the level of restaurants and how he chooses to live life and, you know, lets everybody else participate in that is off the charts. It's one of the, the great qualities um, that he has. And, and I think a part of, you know, a huge part of his coaching staff and how he still does it. Two very quick ones, and I'll let you go. We'll go on to our next person. Uh, number one, Manu Ginobili was one of your main priorities when you got to San Antonio as a player development guy. Uh, Manu is one of my favorite players of all time. Um, and one of my favorite things is to ask Spurs people about the push and pull of Pop adjusting to Manu's, let's say, reckless, uh, sometimes crazy, sometimes unpredictable, very unspursy style of play because they all loved it. They all loved to see Manu test the boundaries and to see Pop's reaction. So as someone who is very close with Manu and very close with Pop, was that like watching two brothers fight? Was it funny for you or were you too emotionally invested in Manu's success to, to think it was funny? Like, I, how did you how did you process that? Because I love to hear all the, like, all the old heads on the bench, like Danny Ferry and Steve Kerr would laugh and laugh and laugh when Manu would do crazy stuff and Pop would go nuts. I mean, I came in with Manu really in my first real year. So I've, I've been with Manu all 12 of my years with, with Pop. And he, he was kind of my guy. I was the director of player development. So initially because you just bleed with your players, like you want him to succeed and it's my job to help him. So whatever combative confrontation existed and at times it definitely existed because there's such highly competitive people, you know, initially it's probably a little bit awkward if I'm honest. And, and as I sort of spent more time with Pop and Manu and I, you know, personally progressed to the front of the bench, there was a level of, of humor that you just saw two thoroughbreds, you know, two alphas just, you know, trying to figure it out how to win. And it's true what you say, Zach, like he was very sort of unspur-like in regards to style of play, but completely spur-like in relation to competitiveness and character. And I think that's the thing that, you know, ultimately bridged, bridged Pop and, and Mono. They, they just have high level of mutual respect. You know, I, I too think of Mono like you do, Zach. He, he remains as competitive a player and professional a player as I've ever been around. And it's hard to say something dissimilar for Pop. But that initial sort of uh, introduction to Pop, the players I'm sure will tell you better stories, but that's my memory from, uh, from the bench. Last one, uh, everyone who was with Pop in Tokyo and everyone who knows Pop and Pop himself will tell you how much that gold medal in the Olympics meant to him personally and obviously to, to everyone involved in the team. In the semifinals, they faced Australia, which had never medaled before in the Olympics, had been the fourth place team many times. You have been the coach of the Australian national team. You lived in Australia. That's a place that is more than near and dear to your heart. Australia was up big in that semifinal in the second quarter towards halftime. 
I just wonder what that game was like for you. Did you just opt out? Did you have a rooting interest? I mean, you must be, on the one hand, you want Australia to medal so badly, and they finally do. They end up winning bronze. On the other hand, there's Pop, and you know what's going to happen if they don't win the gold medal. You know the scrutiny of the Team USA coach. It's gold or, or bust. It's gold or you might as well just not even go. How did you process that game? Did you talk to Pop after that game, or was it was it? did you not even watch it? Oh, no, I, I, I lived it with, you know, two hearts. Uh, I, I actually was in, in Spain with my family, and so the, the time difference was a little bit funky. But for sure, you know, I watched the whole thing. And to your point, like, you, you know, Pop's um, sort of, you know, the United States record of trying to get another gold, and they had struggled previously. They actually lost to Australia in Australia in one of the pre- uh, liminary games. And then to your point, like you put your Patty Mills and Joe Ingles and, and all those guys that I coached Oliver Dover had on. And so there is a little bit of a confliction. I mean, ultimately it played out exactly the way you kind of wish, you know, Pop got his gold medal, Patty and the boys got their, uh, their bronze in Australia's first medal. But it, it was a, um, it was a little bit awkward watching the game. I, I, I have to be honest. Um, and I think at the end of the day to watch Pop ultimately, you know, get, get the gold medal and come home, there's just really not much more to validate, you know, what he really has done in the sport. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, maybe apart from this record that we're speaking about, there really isn't much more for him to do. I'll leave the floor to you. I'm done asking you questions. You got to run. Uh, is there anything we didn't get to? Is there anything you want to say about Greg Popovich that you haven't said? The floor is yours. No, I think you, you hit it. I, I, I might conclude with saying my greatest, you know, my greatest times with Pop have nothing to do with basketball. Like I, I loved, I, I wished I was with him now talking about, you know, what's going on in, in, in the Ukraine and what's he think about you know, the position of, of NATO and, you know, people understand like there was a military background that he had and, you know, story goes, he, he, you know, spoke fluent Russian that we all understand. And I just feel like my, my greatest memories with pop and maybe the greatest influence he had on me had zero to do with hoops. It was more, it's a big world out there. And uh, because I lived all over the place, like I found great interest. And I think our conversations for me were, uh, were just exceptional, high-level stuff. And that's maybe what I miss the most, Zach, not being around it. Coach Brett Brown, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for your memories. And uh, we look forward to seeing you back in the NBA at some point. But enjoy that time with your family. I know that that kid of yours is a hell of a player. I'm not going gonna, gonna to try to stay out of his recruitment, Coach, but I know he's a hell of a player. I know you're proud. Be well. Yeah, lots of fun. Thanks for having me, Zach. Next on the pop train, let's bring in Celtics coach, longtime Spurs assistant, and for three seasons, a player under Greg Popovich, Ime Odoka. How are you, sir? Good. How are you doing? Not as well as the Boston Celtics lately. Congratulations on a great turnaround before we start. Yeah, I appreciate it. We've been playing good basketball. We got the group to buy in on defensive end and sharing the ball offensively, and then we've kind of taken off from there. Uh, what was the angriest pop ever was at you as a player or what was the best piece of advice he ever gave you as a player or both? I want to dig into him as a coach a little bit. So either your worst pop angry moment or best like little piece of advice. 
I can I'll talk about my first year there. We were playing Phoenix in the playoffs and um, I was in and out of the lineup. Um, brought me in. I was a defensive guy. So he brought me in last play of the game um, up with a three point lead and I'm guarding Grant Hill. I see the play coming and I switch off of Grant onto Steve Nash, but go a little bit too far with Grant Hill. Steve Nash gets a wide open three to tie it <laughs> with about five, six, seven seconds left. Um, luckily, we inbound it quick, throw it down. Timmy hits a three at the buzzer to win it for us. So Timmy bailed me out. Uh, everybody was running to Tim to congratulate him. I'm walking to the tunnel pissed because I messed up the coverage and Pop's not even celebrating. He runs right to me like, what the hell were you doing? And, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> That was my first year playoffs and I saw the intensity and obviously the different level that he took it to in the playoffs. So that's that's my player feel. Uh, best advice he gave me was pass it to Tim, get out of the way, just stand in the corner and hope you get it back. He always has been humble about the Duncan thing. Like for all the years of success and we're in like decade number three or whatever it is, it all starts with Tim Duncan, number one pick, uh, and everything flows really from there. Obviously David and, and Sean Elliott and those guys preceded that and laid the groundwork, but all the championships – Start with Tim. I'm curious, um, you guys got off to a rough start in Boston. A lot of scrutiny on the team. Should we break up Jalen and Jason? A lot of scrutiny on you as a first-year head coach. Did Pop, without revealing too much, because I know nobody wants to reveal too much about Pop because they fear the, the phone call that comes from Pop, but did, did he reach out to you with any kind of encouraging words or did he just sort of leave you be and just say they'll figure it out? Yeah, not at all. Um, we We, other than when we played them, in Boston and in San Antonio, we, you know, we got dinner together after the game. Um, we've talked here and there, but nothing about basketball. And so um, one thing I was conscious of, conscious of was my first year or second year coaching when Bud went to Atlanta and Brett left to Philly and other coaches that he's had, you know, on his coaching tree. Um, we'd be in the playoffs or we'd be in meetings and he constantly got coach calls from coaches. And I always noticed the time it took for him to do that. And I said, I'm not going to be the coach to bother him ever. And so I'll congratulate him when the time comes. And we'll talk when we see each other in person after the season. But um, uh, he's doing his own thing. He's going to let me figure out mine. And so we haven't talked about basketball at all. You mentioned that season. That's the 2013-14 season. The year before is the Ray Allen game and maybe the most crushing NBA Finals loss a team can endure. As you mentioned, Brett Brown and Bud both move on after that season, so they don't get to experience the revenge season, which yeah. begins, according to Spurs lore, with Pop at the annual Pop Coaches Retreat saying, okay, everyone ready? We're putting game six in, and we're going to watch it. So what do you remember? Like, are you guys in a hotel room, and what do you remember? Did he just spring that on you, and did you watch the whole game? Like, what do you remember from that? Well, it's an annual tradition. You know, he'll pick a spot. We'll go hunker down for four or five days and go – nine eight eight to 11 12 in the morning have lunch go from one to five and then go have a great dinner at some place so he'll obviously choose a city with whether it's napa chicago or it'd be with great restaurants obviously and so um that's the tradition as you watch the previous year's final series you know, win or lose championship or first round exit and so that's what it was and obviously it started with game six and you know we hit it head on um did our homework where we could adjust and kind of let that fire burn. And we showed it to the players first meeting, hit it directly. And these are the things we did to lose a championship. And um, that's the way he is. He, you know, not beating around the bush. He's going to attack everything with honesty and be direct and blunt about it. And 
that was the best thing you could do for that team. Um, like I said, the fire was burning all year, so they were self-motivated to get back and avenge that loss, and we coincidentally did it against the same team the, the, the next year. I've asked a lot of people that were on the 2013 Spurs um, about this and, and this question, but I've never asked you. The Ray Allen game happens, and instead of crumbling, Pop says, nope, we got a whole team dinner reservation. Uh, everyone's coming, uh, and we're going to break bread, and we're going to dine, and I'm going to go around table to table and talk to people. So who is at your table for that dinner, and what are your memories of it and of Pop at that dinner? Well, we had, uh, yeah, we were Il Gabbiano, uh, mm-hmm. a block away from our hotel over by Brickle in, in Miami. And that was, you know, obviously a chance to close it out. It was supposed to be a celebration dinner and it was that close. So instead of being depressed and everybody sitting in their rooms, he saw the big picture and how we have to prepare them to be ready for game seven. And so it was a hundred plus family members. Um, I was at the coaching staff table, you know, we're discussing things as we're wallowing in our sorrow, but he's keeping everybody up. He's going around table to table and, you know, he understands the morale and the importance of that um, for game seven. And, you know, credit to him for not letting guys sit in the room for a day, you know, or that night and mentally start to prepare for the game seven. And, you know, for to have a crushing defeat like that and come back in game seven. And I think we lost by three or four and um, Tim missed a close shot, a hook over Battier. Uh, that could have tied it probably with a, 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 t- a tougher shot than people remember. Yeah. People remember yeah. it as a layup. If you rewatch it, yeah. it's like a tricky little six foot hook. Yeah. And he got up under him quite a bit. So, um, but that or the point was Tim and the team battled back and didn't feel sorry for themselves. And we saw the opportunity to avenge that game six crushing defeat where most teams honestly probably would have got blown out and have credit to pop for having us at that dinner, getting everybody together and getting them ready for game seven. Um, I read a piece in The Athletic about your first year as a Spurs coach. And your job, one of your jobs was Pop would have these stations at every basket that were devoted to different things. And your station was um, teaching players both offensively and defensively how to play without the dribble, particularly offensively, how to play without the dribble, how to move and pass. And so one of the things I want to do with this podcast is Pop is like as much – personality, mythical basketball person, God, as he is coach at this point. I want to drill down into like what makes him such a good basketball coach, in-game strategy, teaching players. And that anecdote struck a chord with me. So I don't know how you could explain it, but exactly what does that mean? How many players are involved in your drills to teach people how to play without the pass? What do those drills look like? What are you trying to teach offensively, defensively? Take me back to that time because I thought that was interesting. Yeah, the, the, to your point with Pop, he breaks it down to uh, elementary school fundamentals, and that's how we approach every training camp. It'd be no travel drills, footwork, 50% speed where you are building up, and that was no matter who was there, Tim, Tony, Monty for 15 years, they were going to come back and go through the same progression through training camp, and that was one of the drills, uh, learning to play without the dribble. Um, how do you read and react and get guys open and get yourself open without being able to dribble with defenders all over you knowing you can't dribble? So it takes out the pick and roll. It takes out um, isolation one on one. It makes you it forces you to get a teammate open to get yourself open. And so uh, you automatically see who thinks the game a certain way. And that's the benefit of it. Um, you know, we had two different lineups at that time. It was Tony, Tim, Danny Green, Kawhi and let's say Fabricio or one of those guys starting. Well, those are two 
post up guys with Kawhi and Timmy. Um, Tony with the pick and roll, you know, all those guys isolation as well. And then we came in with the second unit with Patty, Manu, Boris, Bellinelli, and that was our movement fly around unit. So they naturally did it better than the first unit, but we wanted everybody to be able to play like that. And I think that's what made us so difficult to defend was the fact that we had two different styles that teams had to prepare for. But his point was no matter what, how good you are, isolation, pick and roll, learn to play without the ball. Um, and so we broke it down in those type of drills. Is it is it two on two, three on three? Like, how are you actually organizing those drills? Yeah, three on three. Um, we'll put them in different scenarios, whether it's a guard up top, a wing in the corner and big on the elbow, hit the elbow and go into split game. Um, start with the coach, them off ball moving, getting each other open, set a flare slip or, you know, fake a pump, fake hit corner, give and go. So you have to learn how to play those type of ways without the dribble. So we would go progressively from playing naturally if it didn't look smooth, we go from two to two dribble max, one dribble max to zero dribble. And so we broke it down all those ways. And uh, it was a huge benefit for everybody to learn to play different ways. What's your most cherished memory from the 2014 championship, the Miami Revenge Championship, which you guys win in five and just like a rollicking win in San Antonio? Maybe it's a locker room moment. Maybe it's the post game party. Maybe it's something with your family. But when you close your eyes and think about that championship, which is just a glorious sort of turnaround of the story. What, what, what sticks out to you? Probably pop did something that he never does. We won game one when LeBron got the cramps and the heat broke down in the building. And so um, we're all fully sweaty in suits and it's crazy, but lost game two and went to Miami and pop said to the whole team, he said, we're here to win two. We're not here to split. We're not here to any. It was, definitive direct and he doesn't do it he never looks ahead he looks at the game three only he said we're here to win two and we went out there and dominated and had the chance to come back home and close it out so that stood out to me and he said after he's like I never do that and he said I wanted them to know we're here for business we're here to handle business and go back home so that would be one of them uh the second would be game five uh, Miami came out on fire gave it their best shot they had it up to 17 the first half and I think by the end of the, by halftime, we got it down to seven or six. And Patty came in and hit some shots. All these guys, you know, we had different guys stepping up and you could see the their face and the look like it's over. They gave it their best shot. They came out on fire. We we're hitting everything. We couldn't make anything. And we, you know, kept pounding the rock, like he says, and got it to seven and blew it out in the second half. So those two things really stand out, Pop, saying the declaration we're here to win too. And then the way we were resilient in game seven when Miami gave it their best shot. Last one. Game five, I'm sorry. Yeah, game five. Last one. You were a player on the Spurs during the sort of period where they were in the wilderness that people don't really remember now. So 2008, you lose the conference finals to the Lakers and Kobe and Powell. 2009, you lose in the first round to Dallas, 4-1. Yeah. 2011, you're back on the Spurs. That's the 1-8 series where you're the one and Memphis is the eight and they upset you in six games. And at that moment, I remember there were a lot of think pieces or a lot of people thinking like, is that it? Is it just over for the Spurs? Has the Duncan thing run its course? Is it time to reinvent the team? What did it feel like inside? I mean, as a player, maybe you're not thinking that way in terms of big organizational, big picture. You're thinking about your career. But did it feel like a pivot point? Because obviously it was not over and it was like emphatically not over. But what did it feel like losing to the eighth seed and all that? So first of all, the first uh, year I got there, I was coming off, they were coming off a championship. So we were still good. I mean, obviously we, we lost the Lakers and a great team in the Western Conference Finals. Um, so, you know, they had never repeated. So that was the goal uh, that season. 
the following year we didn't do as well. We had a lot of injuries and then didn't obviously lost in the first round. Now the the year you're talking about, I got released halfway through the season. So I was I wasn't on the one eight. I forgot about that. Yeah, you know, I was a veteran. That was my last time playing in the NBA. And they released me for Danny Green. So great decision on their part. And that kind of shifted. Wow, it was Danny Green. That's interesting. So they, me and Danny Green came in and, and four other guys came in for a, a workout, uh, open, you know, mini camp workout. They end up keeping Danny. Danny was a little aloof and young at the time. Pop cut him within a week, brought me in. I was there for a month and a half, two months, whatever, and got released at the January deadline. They brought Danny back. And so, like I said, great decision. Obviously, he was a crucial part in the championships going forward and still doing it to this day. But so the, the shift really was from Timmy being a dominant center, the inside ball. That's what it felt like, the shift from him being dominant all those years to kind of handing it over to Manu and Tony. And you could kind of see that progression where Pop always stayed ahead of the curve as far as adjusting to personnel and offense and whose turn it was. And then a year later, I came to coach and you could see Kawhi growing and Danny and all these guys that kind of carried the torch. And so um, that's what it really felt like. It uh, went from David to Timmy, Timmy to Tony Manu, Manu to Kawhi and just down the line. And so you could see that shift happening. But Tim being obviously the anchor and the crucial piece throughout the years, but he was gracious and understood where he was at in his career and kind of passed the torch down just like David did to him. I'll leave it to you. The floor, the floor is yours. If there's something you wanted to say about pop that you haven't said, if there's, if there's anything you wanted to put out there that you want to put out there about pop and his career or anything you just wanted to get into the weeding into the floor is yours. No, I mean, what you see is what you get. Um, you know, there's a perception in the media about him being a grumpy, gruff old, you know, whatever. And, He's the most genuine, kind, caring, big teddy bear, like heart, biggest heart. And people that get to know him, you know, you see that pretty quickly. And, you know, he's a basketball coach at heart, doesn't care to talk to media and doesn't want to do all the little things. He'd rather just coach his team and be with his guys and not do the stuff that gets monotonous, obviously, after 25 years of doing it. But um, that's him. And and the beauty in his, his uh, brilliance, I guess, is the simplicity of it. You know, his big saying is less is more um, all about relationships. So all these things that I saw as a player and obviously with him for seven years as coach, I find myself leaning back on those. Now um, we have a lot of similarities in the way we think in general, but um, I've been to, you know, Philadelphia and Brooklyn and now have my own chance here in, in Boston and those, the fundamentals and base and foundation of what I learned with him is going to carry me through my career. And that's the simplicity. It's, don't try to overcomplicate it. Don't try to be too smart and out, out coach and out be a genius out there. It's, it's basketball. It's relationships. It's not about the X's and O's. It's about the relationships. And if you can get guys to buy into what you want to do, and it's a simple message that's not always easy to uh, get across. But when you do, you, know, you see the fruits of those labor. And so all the things I learned from him off the court and not the X and O part um, make, make him brilliant and one of the best coaches ever. Coach Ime Udoka, you're doing great work with the Celtics and some really interesting X's and O's things that we'll have to talk about another day. But keep it up. You, you got a game tonight in Charlotte where, where it's Wednesday afternoon against the Hornets team that's going to be mad after Kyrie just lit them up last night. So good luck and uh, keep up the good work. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 
Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Well, from Ime Odoka to the guy who was picked up after they released Ime, as, as Coach Udoka just told us, Danny Green, longtime Spur champion with the Raptors, the Lakers, winning just follow him, follows him wherever he goes. Danny, how are you, sir? I'm good, man. Yourself? I'm hanging in. I'm hanging in. 11 years later, three championships later, chasing the fourth one with the Sixers. This is a guy drafted 46. Waved goodbye, Cleveland. We don't want you. We don't need. We don't think you're a good fit right now with with what we're doing. Goodbye, Spurs pick you up. Then the Spurs wave you. Then the Spurs sign you again, and the rest is history. What was? What do you remember? What was the first time you met Greg Popovich? What do you remember, if anything? Oh, I do remember um, being scared to death of him. Uh, I still think to this day um, there's an appropriate fear for everyone that's played for him. Uh, you know, they obviously they love Pop. He's great. He, he's like the grandpa off the court, but on the court, you know, he's he's very intense. So I remember him having this aura about him, this presence that was, you know, kind of scary. So but I was just so happy to be there. Um, you know, I might have been I might have said some of the dumbest wrong things at the wrong time during that time. Um, there was some media frenzy going on. I don't want to speak of the topic, but. It was like, you know, he came to me and was like, you know, be sensitive of this, this and that with the media. I actually say this and this. And I was like, well, you know, they're probably not going to ask me anything because I'm nobody important. But like, you know, I was just so happy to be there. Um, you know, it probably came off really dumb. But, uh, you know, because it was like a real serious, intense moment. Uh, but I do remember stepping to his office a couple of times, talking to him. And of course, the process of being um, cut. I had to talk to him before I was waived a couple of days later. Um, they waived me actually for email. So middle of season, um, I did two workouts with them. I came in and then the second one, they signed me three or four days later, they were like, well, we want to just bring somebody in that knows the system already give mine a little break. So they waved me and they brought in, we were bringing email. So they, they waved me for email like right away. And then um, later on, I guess, I don't know if it worked, it didn't work out with email and them, but they, had let Ime go, and I guess they were looking for somebody else toward the end to sign for playoffs. And that's pretty much, I was a guy that signed for playoffs uh, to fill the roster spot, and I wasn't expected to play at all. But um, I ended up playing very little bit. You know, Mono, I think, dislocated his elbow at that point. playing against right, at, right, right at the end of the season. Yeah, and um, 
you know, I didn't play during this, but obviously those games we lost, I think it was, was it 1-8? I think we were 1 and they were 8. or one and, Yep, yep. And they said he wasn't 100% healthy. They were The grindhouse was something, something special, which is it's getting back there now. Uh, but with all those guys, they were very talented and a good team. Zebo played unbelievably well. Mark was there. They had Tony Allen, I think, still there. Mike Conley. Um, they had a good group of guys there. And, uh, you know, they got us. And I played at the end. I showcased very little because it was just during closing time. We were down 10 to 15 with like a minute left. And, you know, Pop would pull the plug and, you know, rest the rest the starters. Um, but that was the the start of me um, in San Antonio. You you were um, you were the victim of of you, for a while you were the victim of like the most quick hooks of all the Spurs. Just like one mistake, you're out. One mistake, you're out. Quick substitution. Do you just have to? Is did, did you know a lot of players wouldn't react well to that? I assume it's not fun, but you're being coached. I don't even remember what you would do to draw that kind of substitution. But you just do you just walk off the floor, not make eye contact? We'll address it later. Like that was that must have not been so fun. Yeah, uh, I was a young player still trying to earn my stripes, so you kind of just go with what happens. And and you know, to be fair, everybody got a, a fair share of pop. Uh, Maybe not so much as hook, you know, but they definitely all got um, lectured, I would say, in a PG way. You know, he would, you know, come to the huddles and anybody, nobody was safe. So anybody could get cussed out at any moment. Um, the veterans, the young guys, but usually guys that have been there long enough because they should know better. You know, that was his philosophy. And the young guys got a little bit of a leash, but after a while, you know, they got to get you in gear and get you ready, get you prepared for if we need you down the road or in playoffs. So he showed a lot of tough love. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of just the, the nature of the, the game there. It was the kind of the, the atmosphere. It was just, you know, how things were operated around there. So I was used to it. And it's not an easy thing to get used to, of course. And I know it's, it's not fun, but, you know, you just when you get subbed out, you come out because he was sub mono. He was sub Timia. He was sub Tony out. Um, maybe not so quickly, but like some guys would come in, some guys would come out. You know, there would be Gary Neal. We had Dewan early on. We had Patty. We had, you know, Corey Joseph. Um, you know, we had Kawhi, we had a lot of guys that when they were younger had to go through all those things uh, of being, you know, disciplined. And, you know, you just kind of walked to the bench and you waited to see what you did wrong um, or you'll ask what you did wrong or sometimes they won't tell you. But sometimes you'll hear it firsthand on the court in a timeout. Um, but, yeah, that was kind of the nature of the business uh, in San Antonio. He's a he's by the time this posts he will he will be either on the verge of the wins record or already have broken it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's a great coach. So let's talk about him as a coach. What's a part of your game? It could be a tiny skill, a piece of footwork, a, a decision making you know process. What's what's a small skill that he really helped you with? What's part? Of, let's dig into the X's and O's. Like, what's something that he really stressed to you that changed your game? I just think I don't think it was any particular like skill um i think it was more of a mindset and just an approach and he wanted me as well as any everybody to not be too cool and not have a and have have a sense of urgency that appropriate fear so the reason why you see guys not giving up on plays or chasing guys or contesting every shot is because he demanded that of you um for you to dive on the floor get loose balls 50 50 balls because uh, that was expected of you um, and to come in with that same mindset and that intensity every game, regardless if it's a top-seeded team or a lower-seeded team, because um, any night in the NBA, you could lose any given night. Um, so I think the approach and that that appropriate fear of 
you know, not getting too comfortable within the rotation or within your system or thinking that you've made it. And it allowed me to have a longer career and also carry that over uh, to be able to win other places. So I don't think it was one particular skill. Um, I would say I had Chad Force here with, with me. I had Will Hardy with me to start. And the guy, those guys helped me become a, a better shooter, a more consistent shooter. Um, but there was a with him, it was more of a mindset and an approach type of, the, a type of deal. Can you see the rebound of LeBron's three that ends up going to Chris Bosh and then going to Ray Allen. Can you can you close your eyes and see that? Because it goes it goes right over your head. I rewatched yeah. it. I was like, "Where's Danny?" It goes right over you. Can you close your eyes and see it? Yeah, I, I saw it for half a second. So that whole play, that whole series of events, that that'll never leave me um, because it was pretty much engraved. Mind you, we lost, and man, if we would have won, that, that could have been a lot of different a different story for me. Um, but because the way we lost, it'll never leave me. And because of the following season, we we watched film on it, and you know it was pretty. You know, we rewound, we watched that play, and from those plays, we, I guess, wouldn't say predicated, but we prepared every game to play, and to not make those type of mistakes to play Miami. If we want to win, we got to beat Miami. We got to beat these guys. We got to be perfect because they're so talented. Um, but yes, I saw it for half a second, and Chris Bosch just jumped. I remember somebody jumping over my back and just grabbing the board and just kicking it out. So it was half a second of the ball, and I thought I was able to jump, and I couldn't even get off the ground because he had a you know seven footer um, on my back. Um, and I think it was me, mine. It was a couple of us down there, and he just kind of just jumped over everybody, jumped on top, make sure he got that ball, and and he found you know ran in the corner, which you know in the rest is history. So. You mentioned the the Memphis series in 2011. You're you're the new guy there, like you said. You're you're getting in after he pulls the pulls the starters, and the game is out of reach. But I wonder if that gave you an interesting perspective into that moment, because to everyone on the outside watching the Spurs, you know they had just come off losing in the first round two years before. It, it had been it had been a while since they had made a really deep run, uh-huh. and that one felt like is is it just over? Like is this is this just it for Tim, Tony, Manu? Is this all? Is this over? Like, but did you do you remember hearing that around you? Kind For sure. Of? And every year, I feel like every year I got there, they were like, you know, Tony's close to retiring. <laughs> you know, and I was there with him. Like, <laughs> I was there with him for like six, seven years. You know, so it, it, it was. They was like, oh, is it over for the big three? Are they done? Are they tired? Or are they not going to make it anymore? Are they ever going to be a contender again? Um, and Tony was still. Tony and Manu were still had some years left, but they, nobody think they had a lot of years. They thought they had like. You know, three or four, but they thought Timmy was toward the end of it. Um, you know, he had the knee issue, and then I guess they people were saying his weight was fluctuating. Out, but I remember I said that summer they came back, and then they had emergency. We just drafted Kawhi and Corey Joseph, um, and we had let George Hill go. And I was like, man, they love George. So I was I was shocked by that. Um, but yeah, I do remember a lot of the talk of you know who's retiring, who's leaving, are they not going to be a contender anymore? That type of deal. Um, but me, I was just more focused on just trying to make it and trying to be in the league and try to make the rotation. Um, obviously, winning is something I want to do, but I knew we were going to win. I don't know if we were in a championship, but I just thought, you know, I'd have an opportunity to be in a rotational team that's a good team that would, you know, be one of the better teams in the West to make the playoffs always. Um, nobody can predict the emergence of Kawhi. Uh, nobody ever saw that coming. He was just coming out of college, a, a big body with, a, you know, a freakishly – Freakishly long arms, hands, and and a defensive guy. Nobody thought he was going to be the offensive player that he's become. 
Um, and so we, they, they, the city, the town, the organization, everybody loved George Hill. They just didn't, I guess they couldn't pay him at that time. They had to part ways. Um, Timmy came back, unbelievable shape. Tony came back with a chip on his shoulder. Manu back, came back healthy. You know, he had the elbow. And, you know, those guys, you know, continued to do it for another five or six years after that uh, at even higher levels. And then said me and Kawhi kind of, they kind of groomed us to be, you know, defensive wings. And, and that's kind of all we needed. And then, you know, we faced OKC, Western Conference Finals, you know, once once or twice. Memphis, a couple, couple times, Western Conference Finals. We lost OKC in the Western Conference Finals. Uh, we had Steven Jackson for uh, a second. We had Richard Jefferson for a second. And then um, eventually, you know, me and Kawhi got mature enough to where we could be the guys to help, you know, win this thing with this with this group, with this team. A good mix of older guys and younger guys. And, um, you know, the 2013 made it to the finals finally. And then, of course, playing LeBron. And then 2014, we came back with the bench. We got Boris, Tiago. We had a good mix, of, a, a good group of guys with depth um, that can get the job done. And it just – all it took was – and also, it, it's rare to have a group come back for four years, like three or four years in a row. Um, you don't see that. Even after a finals or after a West Coast finals, usually guys go get paid somewhere else or, or leave. But we were fortunate enough uh, where they figured out and we figured out and we wanted to stay together uh, to make it happen. Did you ever sit back in that 2014 season and even during that final specifically, but probably when you were on the bench, but maybe even when you were in the game and the ball is just flying, did you ever sit back? I mean, that was the beautiful game at its apex. Did you ever sit back and be like, man, we are good. Like, this is really fun. No, you you don't appreciate it until you don't have it anymore. You know, so like, um, not to say that, we didn't move the ball well in Toronto. We did. We moved the ball greatly. Um, and L.A., at times, we had some some movement. But usually most teams, they have their superstars. They get the the uh, say mat, mat, mismatch that they want. They set a screen, this, that, and other, or run some plays where some guys will get a look, the other guys, but then they'll run most of the plays for their superstars to get the look or mismatch. And then we play off them. Those guys make the right play, or they won't make the right play. They try to score, draw a double team, and find guys, um, similar to here. Uh, but you don't realize that how – great that type of basketball is and how much we were hooping until years later and you never know who was going to get the ball or many shots in, in san antonio everybody touched it it didn't matter and whoever was open that night the most was going to get the shots um obviously tony had mvp caliber year mono played well some years and timmy was still timmy but those guys were the most unselfish superstars that i have gotten I'm not saying that you know braun is obviously a great facilitator James is a great facilitator. Kyle Lowry was a great point guard. But the collective of them three of not thinking about themselves at all, like I've never seen a trio or a duo, however you want to put it, that was that unselfish to where they didn't care about numbers. They just wanted to win games. And Timmy would set screens and, and find us like he was the role player. Uh, Manu, you know, he would obviously take the risky passes because that's who he was. But, you know, that's what they taught. And we were hooping. And when you're in it, you don't realize how good, but it was just a basketball for us. We didn't think like, oh, we thought we were good, but we thought we had to be perfect to beat the, that team. And we were close to it um, to, to make it happen. But, you know, we were just playing our type of basketball, which is a brand of basketball that everybody tried to, I guess, take that blueprint and, and, and incorporate it in their systems. Any, any last thing you want to say about Pop before we finish up here? Anything you didn't get across? Anything you want to say to him? Any, anything we didn't bring up? No, man, I, I know that uh, I know that he misses those days. So do I. Um, I know that we, we kind of spoiled him a little bit. Timmy, Timmy, Tony monitored for sure. I know the younger generation is a little different. 
I'm sure he's gotten a little softer in his older age, um, probably because he has to, uh, he's had to, because I don't think those young guys can take uh, the lashing that he's used to giving out or has given out in the past. But, um, you know, he's done an amazing job, man. I just want to say congratulations because I know he's going to break the record. And what he's done with those young guys is, is pretty amazing. With DeJounte, I couldn't have seen that coming either, him being an all-star. I know he had, you know, great ability and great potential. But being an all-star this soon in his career is nothing short of amazing. So congratulations to, to obviously their group, DeJounte, and also Pop and his coaching staff on, on taking those young guys and making them, you know, respectable every year. You know, it's hard to be on top for 20 years Whew. and then, you know, still continue to be, you know, or play a team, you know, when you lose all those guys. He lost everybody and there's still a team that could probably sneak in and, you know, be in the playing games and, and they're respectable. You can't not, you can't sleep on them. You go into that building, you're bound to probably lose if you're not playing at even top teams. So they, they're, every time they step on the floor, they're a threat. And, you know, he, he's done an amazing job with that young group. Danny Green, thank you for re your reflections. Congrats on your ongoing success. I will see you in Philly on Monday for the Jokic and Bede game, which is on my calendar circled and two really good teams. Obviously, you guys are rolling. So keep it up. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, my man. I appreciate you. All right, let's bring on next in our pop cavalcade of guests, the head coach of the red-hot and league-best Phoenix Suns, a San Antonio Spurs player, intern, front office person, and coach over the years, Monty Williams. How are you, sir? I'm good, Zach. It's good to be on, and um, thank you for the opportunity to share about somebody who's meant so much to me and my family, and uh, it's an honor to be able to do this. Well, rather than me opening with a specific question for you, what do you want to share? What do you want to say about Pop? I don't know if you came with a specific story in mind or a specific message you wanted to give people about what he has meant to you in your career. I'll let you start. Wow. Um, <clears throat> I think for me, it's, it's always been his um, genuine away from basketball care um, for me as a, as a human being. Um, you know, during the, the darkest time of my life, when I lost my wife, um, years ago, Pop was, you know, on the phone with me, just giving me advice about what I needed to, to do. And he said, Mark, you got to let people help you. And he just kept saying it. And he had been around me for so long. He knew how stubborn and, and somewhat independent I could be when it came to to being helped. And uh, he just kept saying, Mont, you just gotta let people help you now. And I got past that time to a degree and I just, it, it just stuck with me, you know, that he, he knew me that well. And in that moment, he knew exactly what I needed to hear. And, you know, the stories that we have in our past, I mean, they, <laughs> when I was in New Orleans, man, he he did something that changed our program in New Orleans. Um, we were a pretty young team. We had lost Chris Paul and David West and, and a bunch of vets, and we had to rebuild. And Pop said, why don't you guys come over to San Antonio for a week and spend time with us? 
And I was like, okay, you know, I'll bring a couple coaches and that kind of thing. And she was like, no, bring everybody, you know, coaches, the whole team. And we went over there. Uh, we drove uh, some of the players flew and we brought our whole team and our guys got to work with uh, Tim and all the guys that were there. And the coaches got a chance to be in the gym and really see what that culture was like. And not only that, like after we worked out, there's a pool in the back. We all went swimming together and just had a ball for like the whole week. But then it didn't stop there. Like every night, Pop would pick a restaurant in San Antonio and take our staff out every single night. And it changed our program. And I'll never forget hearing a couple of their coaches, but one in particular, I won't say his name, when we started to play them like the next year and the year after that, we started to win a few games and he was like, he was kicking himself. He's like, doggone it. We let those guys in our gym and they got confidence and you could see how we grew as a team and as an organization, just based on that time. Everybody was excited about the way that week ended, but I left that experience really understanding how much pop cared about me. And, you know, we were a bit of a fledgling program at the time, and um, we needed something that was going to keep us afloat and, and give us a bit of juice going forward. And it was exactly what we needed, but it was beyond basketball. Um, you know, Pop didn't bring any assistance, his assistance to those dinners that night. It was just him. And... Uh, the way he genuinely cared about all the coaches, man, it just blew me away. And it was for me pretty cool because I could affirm what I'd been telling the coaches for years about him, you know, and they got a chance to see it. So it was just typical pop. Um, you were on the Spurs the season when they fired, when pop fired Bob Hill yeah. in the middle of the season, at the beginning of the season, 20 games in about and made himself the coach. And I was going back and reading old clips of that. And given that they had won 59 games the year before, even though you guys were losing, some of the players were like, whoa. He, like, Pop came on the bus, according to what I what I read, and told the team, hey, this is happening. And the, the response was like, whoa, that's, that's kind of surprising. So how well did you know Pop by that time as he was the GM, not the coach, not around the team every day? And what were your first impressions of Greg Popovich, the man and the coach? Well, I think for me, like when you're that young, you're not thinking about coaches being fired or hired or anything like that, you know, just from my perspective. And so all I could go on was what the vets were talking about. But thankfully, I knew because um, I got traded there a year before and Pop was the GM who traded for me. And I knew that he wanted me there because he told me when I got to San Antonio over all-star break, he was like, Hey, I, you're a guy that I wanted in this trade. And, you know, we want to see you do well and play. And so I had, I had that to reference, but it was, there was some shock um, on the bus that morning. I do remember that. And it just so happened to be here in Phoenix and I'll never forget like, <laughs> That morning, Pop just got on the bus real matter of fact, 
He said what he had to say. He sat down and we went to shoot around and that was it. And I respected it just because he didn't try to build an argument. He didn't try to make Bob look bad because Coach Hill was a really good coach and Pop respected him enough to not do that. He didn't build any arguments to get the team on his side. I respect the fact that he just said what he had to say was about 10 seconds. He sat down and we went to practice. And that's that's what I remember. I remember a few guys in the bus. I sat like in the middle of the bus because I was the youngest. And I, you know, <laughs> I just didn't want to sit in the back. <laughs> and I heard a few guys laughing when Pop said it. And they thought he was joking. And when he sat down, they realized he wasn't playing around. And it just went like eerily, if that's a word, it, it was quiet. And um, we went to practice and that was it. And that was all I, that was all I remember from it. And for me, it was huge because that year, if, if you care to remember, like David got hurt, Sean got hurt. And all of a sudden, man, I, I was thrown in the fire. I got a chance to ball. So I was like, this is, this is really cool for me. But that's what I remember. He just said what he had to say, and we went to shoot around. You got a chance to ball, and there was a kid at Wake Forest who was, uh, who was balling out that year as well. Uh, what were your first impressions of him as a, as a coach? Like, like, how did the program change when he took over? Or what, what was he? You've joked, I've read stories where you joked about how your first name was a cuss word here and there, which, which you don't cuss at all. So that must have been interesting for you. Uh, and, and that he would yell at you, but then take you out to dinner the same night. But what were, how, in terms of skill and philosophy, like what was he about right away as a coach? I think that was the thing that stuck out. You know, back then, again, like I was so young, I didn't know what to look for. You know what I'm saying? All I knew about a coach was, in my mind, he had a philosophy. And I was taught that by my high school coach, Taft Hickman. Like, Coach Hickman had a philosophy. We were going to defend and we were going to play hard. And we were going to work, you know. And I knew what a philosophy sounded like. And that was what I understood when Pop took over. Like, we were going to have a philosophy. Not like we didn't have it before, but he had his philosophy and it was going to be defense. And then he started to instill like the, the character pieces, um, the values of being selfless and checking your ego at the door. And I think people get confused by that because they think when Pop tells people to check their ego, he... I think people think he wants them to check their personality and it's so far from the truth to leave their personality at the door. He just from my understanding for him, it's like, don't let that selfish part of you get in the way of what we're trying to do as a team period. And he had the right guys for it. I mean, David Robinson, Avery Johnson, Vinny Del Negro, Sean Elliott, like they were perfect for that type of philosophy. And then lo and behold, you end up getting Tim Duncan, you know, and he was the epitome of it. But that that was what he started to instill, you know, get over yourself. This is about the team. But if you throw yourself into it, your individual talents are going to show. And I always felt like that was a misunderstanding when Pop would say, check your ego at the door. I think some people thought he was like trying to get folks to deny themselves. And he's the main person 
in my career that's pushed me to be authentically me, especially with, you know, the way people tend to categorize me since I've been in the NBA as whatever. I think he's the one person leader that I've had that's pushed me to be myself, even when it's different than what he thinks or what he's about. He's always said, no, you be you. And I'd never forget when I first got into coaching, I went to the Chicago pre-draft camp and Pop told me, he said, look, there's going to be tons of people telling you to go up there and, and network and try to get to know this guy and get to know that guy and start a conversation. He said, don't do that. He said, that's not who you are. He said, Mont, you just be you. That's good enough. And it just, it just like, <laughs> I was so relieved because I, I, I was, everybody kept telling me I was just getting into coaching. They said, you got to go there and network. I was like, what? And before I left, I was about to get on the plane and he knew I was headed up there. He said, don't you do that. He said, you go up there and work and you come back home. And he said, just be you. That's good enough. And that's how he started that program. I mean, he, it was more about defense and the philosophy of just being selfless and, and, and throwing yourself into the team. I saw an anecdote from Coach Budenholzer that I wanted to run by you because you were there. You, I believe your technical title was intern in the 2004-05 season where the Spurs win the title over Detroit in just a yeah. seven-game slugfest. Um, and Bud was telling his story. So you guys, the Spurs go up 2-0. Detroit yeah. squares it at 2-2, and they blow the blow the doors off the Spurs in game four. And Bud said, Pop was really concerned about just keeping the team together, keeping spirits good between game four and game five. And he said, he told this report, I can't remember who was writing the story, I apologize. He said, we did, some, we did some funny stuff by Pop standards between games four and five, but I don't really want to say what that funny stuff was. Can you say what that funny stuff was? I'm dying to know what the funny stuff was. No, I can't because... I think that's the, like, I'll talk about him and I'll say things. I know he, he doesn't like when I talk about him the way that I do because he doesn't want that, but I don't mind it because it bothers me when people look at him a certain way, when they see this gruff, direct, black and white, and I'm just like, Pop, that's, you can be that, but that's not, that's like 2% of you. You know, on a, you know, people don't know the pop that I know. So I, I pushed that because I love him. But that series and what happened was like a, a lesson in leadership, chemistry building, and being the ultimate atomic glue for a program. Though between that game and game five, you know what I'm saying? It was just like, and that's why I've always said it. He's had he has the best feel of any leader I've ever been around. He just he just gets it. And that was it was exhibit A, but I still can't tell. Well, then I'm just gonna have to concoct in my head what the funny <laughs> stuff was and go from there. Last one, I'll let you go. You've you've mentioned before that in the aftermath of the finals last season, um, you reached out to several of your coaching mentors just for sort of how do I move on? How how do I how do we go from here? Pop was one of them without getting too deep into the specifics, because I can tell you don't want to, was there any was there any general kind of vibe he gave you about, uh, obviously he's moved on from a, a crushing, painful finals himself. Um, was there any kind of thing that stood out that he told you? You know what, what he did that 
um, helped me let my guard down when we were texting throughout the finals. And, you know, for, for one of the few times in my life, I had the wherewithal to understand that that was tough for him because it was me and Bud. And I thought about that. I was like, man, like what, like what does Pop think, you know? He can't, he can't cheer for me. He can't cheer for Bud. He can cheer for me. He can cheer for Bud. I'm like, that's got to be a tough place. And so when it was over with, because um, all we had done was text, because I knew he was dealing with USA basketball, and I couldn't, I didn't want to, like, mess with that. I knew how important that was. So when we finally got to talk, we talked for a half hour at least, and, and we, we did nothing but talk about our families, talk about his vacation where he was. He was doing something in a, a place and he was telling me about every part of that vacation, the hotel he stayed in and, and who owned the hotel. I was talking to him about the land that I bought in San Antonio about 40 minutes north and it, like how it's been a huge blessing to my family. We didn't talk about it and it really helped me because that was his way of letting me know, like, Ma, it's just a game. I know how bad you hurt, but we're going to talk about the stuff that's really important. And it really helped me to, like, get over myself. You know, Nate McMillan had already checked me. He, Nate was like, Ma, what would you change? I was like, not much, if anything. He said, all right, then, cut it out. So then I got a chance to talk to Pop, and Pop was just like, we ain't, we're not even going there. He's like, your, your family is beautiful. I'm here on vacation, you know, at this place where he was. And he told me like every detail about this hotel, the conversations he had with this particular individual. And we didn't talk about it. And it really helped me to see like his genius, you know? He's like, I know, you, I know he was thinking like, I know you're hurting, but it's just the game. And it, it took me back to the conversation that we had when I was in New Orleans and we had to beat them to make it to the playoffs. The very last game, I remember that. The very last game of the I believe season. I believe that's the same night as Kobe's last game for the Lakers. It was crazy. I mean, all that stuff that happened that day. So I, I was, I forget, they played like someone the night before and they could have lost that night or whatever and, and we want whatever it was. But he called me and he left this, long voicemail and he said Mont I know you're looking at film I know you're trying to figure out how to stop Tony and pick and roll I know you're trying to figure out he said cut it out just put it down do what you do everything's going to be okay and again it just like disarmed me because he he just he got it he's like look you've done everything you can do up to this point he's like they got to go out and play you got to love them lead them and we'll see what happens. And I was just like, <laughs> I was like, this dude is like, he just gets it. And so he did the same thing. He disarmed me by not even talking about it. All we did was talk about our families, talk, you know, I, I love fishing and he knows, you know, I'm as country as the day is long. And he knew I was going to be fishing and, and probably going outside to use the bathroom with my pants all the way down to my ankles just because I was out in the country. You know, he knows that part of me. And um, we didn't even talk about it. 
Great stuff, Coach. You got a lot of work to do. You got a playoff run to prepare for. You got some. You got Devin back last night. You got Chris to get healthy. You got a lot going on. You've just done an incredible job with the Suns. They are a joy to watch, and uh, I wish you the best of luck going forward this season. And thank you for spending some time with us to talk about Pop. Zach, thank you, man. And I'm hopeful that people will see um, the man that he has been authentic and caring and direct and all the stuff that I know about him and more. I hope people see that, not just the wins. It's, it's what he's done for the game and, and other people like me that I hope that um, people will get a chance to see. Thank you, Coach. Thank you. All right, last but certainly not least in the Pop Cavalcade, uh, I believe eight-time NBA champion now, five as a player, three as a coach, two under Greg Popovich, who he counts as one of his mentors, the head coach of the Golden State Warriors, Mr. Steve Kerr. How are you, sir? I'm good. How you doing, Zach? I'm hanging in. I'm hanging in. So looking back at your playing career, you know, everyone knows Bulls, Spurs, and I had to have my memory refreshed that there's this, like, Blazers interregnum between the two Spurs segments. I thought, boy, I wonder what that conversation is like, both <laughs> on the way out and on the way back in. So who yeah. I don't even remember who you got traded for, but what would Pop Pop had to trade you and then reacquire you? How does he handle things like that? Yeah, he was amazing. And, and um, you know, that's one of my uh, enduring thoughts about Pop is how beautifully he handles uh people when you know they get injured traded cut like, like there's such a humanity about him and it's genuine you feel it and uh, you feel that every day so so it's you know you don't ever question it you, you know it's it's uh, authentic to to him so when I got traded to Portland I was actually in Tucson I had a basketball camp back then and every year in Tucson and I was at that camp and I my phone rings. It's a Spurs number. And I'm like, Hmm, this is, uh, this would have been like late July or maybe early August. And, and, uh, I, this was not a normal time for me to be getting a call from the Spurs, you know, and, uh, and it was pop. And, uh, he said, you know, he called me Steve-O. He's like, Steve-O, I got, uh, I, I got a tough one for you. And I said, what, what's that? And he said, well, we're, uh, we're probably going to move you. Uh, there's a deal on the table. Um, I can tell you right now, Aaron is going to kill me. Aaron is, you know, was Pop's wife who passed away a few years ago. Um, but, you know, we had a great relationship uh, with, with Pop and Aaron, my wife, Margot. Like there was a real love between all of us. And, and, uh, it, and it was so brilliant of Pop. I mean, it was authentic, but it was also like, just a smart thing, you know, like Aaron's going to kill me because she loves you guys. And, and this pains me, but we're going to, we have to do this for our team and, and I've got to do the right thing for our team. You know, we're going to trade you to Portland. Uh, there's a deal on the table. It's probably going to happen. I wanted to give you a heads up. Um, and uh, most likely would will happen in the next couple of days. And, um, you know, so it, it, it was, I had three kids at the time in school and not an easy thing to, to undergo. Um, but the first words out of his mouth, you know, Aaron's going to kill me. It just perfect, perfectly uh, sort of encapsulated pop's personality, a little bit of humor, uh, a lot of compassion. 
and some genuine uh, love and friendship that's, you know, all right there in one comment. And the fact that he called me before it happened, um, it was really, really meaningful that, that, you know, didn't usually happen. Now, when they, when they bring you back, does, does Aaron, his wife get to call with the, with the, and and apologize on pop's behalf and say, we're bringing you back because I want, how does that happen? I think he said, Aaron made the deal. Um, But uh, no, that yeah, I was traded back a year later. The original trade, I think I went to Portland um, and Steve Smith, it, I, it was, uh, I was like salary cap fodder. So Steve Smith came uh, to uh, San Antonio and I went to Portland with, gosh, who was it? With someone else. I can oh, probably Derek, look this up. Is Derek Anderson. Derek Anderson. I always had a soft spot for Derek Anderson. Yeah. So Derek and, and Steve were the headliners. They were both starters. And then my, my money made the, the deal work. Also a second round pick uh, went to the Blazers in that deal with you. Number 58 in the draft. And if you can Ooh, remember, if you can remember one. who got picked with that, I, I can't, I, I, I will not no pronounce idea. the name correctly. Um, you were with pop in uh, Tokyo this past summer at the Olympics and pop has talked about how, and other people have talked about how much that meant to pop. We all know his military background. We all know what the international competition, the international game means to him. We also know a couple of things. Number one, that was a screwed up Olympics. You really couldn't leave the hotel. You were all stuck together. I I believe the women's team was also staying at the same hotel as you guys. And, And number two, the Olympics is really fun and carefree until it's not fun and carefree anymore. Like it's gold or bust and you guys are down 15 or whatever to Australia in the semifinals and the pressure is enormous. Um, What are your sort of favorite pop memories either from that game, which was, I mean, I remember watching and be like, okay, I've seen team USA be down 15 and win by 30. So I'm I'm not, I'm not worried, but I'm a little worried. And, and, or the, the, the relief, the celebration when, when it's finally over and you guys beat France. Yeah. And it it was a tough go before we even got to Tokyo. Remember we lost a couple of exhibition games. Um, We played Nigeria and they made like 23s and we, we had, I think we had about three days of practice. Pop's big concern going into Vegas was, um, to keep everybody healthy. So we were really easing into everything and played a couple of exhibition games right away. And we just, we just weren't ready. So we, we lose a couple and, you know, pop's taking a lot of heat media wise, uh, typical pop. He, he doesn't say one word about any of that to the team. He just remains resolute and he, you know, continues to prepare the team and, um, once we got to Tokyo, you know, that's when we really started to kick things in terms of our, our rhythm and our conditioning. And, uh, and, and, you know, so we peaked at the right time, but my memory of that Australia game is pop making great adjustments during the game to help us get uh, back uh, into the game defensively. And uh, we had a great run to end the first half. Uh, and I think it was tied or maybe we might've been up two or three at half and we just took over the game in the, in the second half, but just pops resilience and his, his resolute nature, you know, to never, never panic, to always just stay with the, the message. Um, 
he he provided the exact voice that the, the players needed. What about the aftermath? I, I believe you guys just had a big dinner at the hotel or something. I, 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 is there karaoke? Was there? I, I feel like there was karaoke. Maybe I can't remember. What was the aftermath of what, winning a gold medal in a pandemic? Yeah, well, it was. It was um, the whole thing was weird, as you mentioned. I mean, we we couldn't leave the hotel, and uh, they also would not serve alcohol to large groups. So you could you could. Uh, I think you could order out like a beer or something in your room by yourself, but they didn't want large groups, um, you know, ordering a bunch of wine and, you know, getting drunk and breathing all over each other. I guess that was the purpose of the the rule. So uh, we ended up having to um, smuggle Pop's uh, favorite wines into the uh, end of the hotel. Don't ask me how it happened. Uh, I won't. I'm not asking. Yeah. I'm not asking a lot of questions about international intrigue. I'm leaving it alone. Yeah. Sean Ford made it happen somehow. And uh, so after games, we would generally, as a coaching staff, we'd go into our room that we had set up. It's kind of a war room and open up a bottle of wine and get some food and just, you know, hash everything out. And so when we won our game for TV purposes, the gold medal game was in the morning. I think it was like a 1030 game. And we won. And then we didn't have the ceremony until after the women's game that evening. So it was like the ceremony was something like seven o'clock at night. And uh, so, you know, all day long, we're, we're celebrating. I do remember Draymond giving Pop his shoes, his game shoes. And Pop immediately put them on at the hotel and started doing defensive slides. That I, That's the video I'm remembering. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. know why I conflated that with karaoke in my head. Some performative thing happened with yes. Pop, which was, which yes. was funny. But he was doing slides. And then uh, Pop also wore the shoes the first time the Spurs came to uh, San Francisco this year. And oh, he nice. wore Draymond's shoes during the game. And, he, you know, he walked out. He's like, hey, Draymond. And he, he points down at his feet. Draymond loved it. He ran out there and gave him a big hug. And... Uh, you know, the thing with Pop is when you once you've played for him, it's a lifelong friendship. It's a lifelong relationship. When I watch League Pass, every time there's an Olympic player playing against Pop, it without fail, I see this huge hug, whether it's, you know, JaVale McGee or Bam Adebayo, you know, any of the guys, uh, you know, Jason Tatum, I'll, I'll, I'll see the, the game end. Pop wraps them up in a big hug and I and I can see exactly what he said he says one word he says gold that's it a big hug yeah and they, and everybody loves it and we you know so that's that's the code word now between anybody with that team just gold that's it last one and i'll let you go i i'm curious as a coach you've you've had a lot of mentors everybody who reaches your level has a lot of mentors what's one thing could be a small basketball thing could be a play could be a larger philosophical thing what's one concrete thing you can tell us that is part of your ideology or part of your game plan or part of your schemes because of Greg Popovich? There's a lot more than one. Um, you know, I, I think um, if I had to describe my, my coaching uh, philosophy, it's really sort of a combination of, of what I learned in San Antonio and, uh, and Chicago uh, under Phil Jackson. Um, and it's, it's not a coincidence that, a lot of people compared this, those Pop's best Spurs teams to the Bulls. You know, there was so much passing and movement, and that's the belief that I have. Uh, but we generally start out every 
practice day uh, with a drill called Mixmaster, um, which was Pop's drill when I played for him, you know, 20 years ago. And uh, it's it's just a warm up drill that involves, uh, you know, five man weave, three man weave, fast break stuff. And the drill is based to based on getting loose, but also having to communicate and make decisions on the fly. And, you know, back then pop would, would just yell out, you know, whatever, you know, five man weave and you're going down and you're coming back and the next group, you know, he'd yell three man weave and you got to get organized. And if you didn't get organized, you know, cause you were talking to the guy next to you or not paying attention, like that whistle would blow and you had to start over again. And, and it was, it, it, it was such a good way to start practice to engage your brain and your body and connect them that uh, I vowed way back then I said if I'm if I ever coach I'm like I'm 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 starting practice with this too and so we we generally start our days with that as well that's awesome coach you got a lot to do uh, you're in Denver for another game against the Nuggets um, tonight on TNT we're doing this on Wednesday, Thursday afternoon, rather. Pop hasn't broken the record yet. We had we, we had a Toronto delayed the inevitable, but it, it will happen. And uh, coach, get get Draymond healthy, get the team healthy. Let's see you guys at full throttle. And uh, it's always it's always a pleasure to catch up. Always a pleasure watching guys play. And uh, stay safe out there. All right, you too, Zach. Thanks a lot. All right.